Hello, I'm Brandon Mercer. I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, July 14th, 2016, and this is episode 34 of Garbage. Excellent. Um, we had a number of people email us this week about various different things from storage to MUT to NeoMUT to Chromebooks and a couple other things in between. Um, so maybe we'll touch on that a little bit. Um, I want to talk about the storage thing a little bit. And then um, we can do a little bit of Chromebook discussion. And I wanted to talk about Copperhead. All right. That sounds exciting. Obviously, you guys love Mutt because there are, what, three or four emails talking about NeoVim and Mutt. And um, someone was emailing us and said that they use a lot, one word, A-L-O-T. And a lot is basically a wrapper around something else. So um, anyway, thank you for letting us know about that. Um, yeah, everybody likes Mutt who's tried it. But one of the more interesting things... Um, that I think is uh, lacking in OpenBSD is um, is basic uh, storage management, and everybody you know talks about ZFS when they talk about storage. And someone wrote in and they were asking, how do we do storage? Um, because with something like ZFS, you create a giant pool of disk. Let's say you have you know 10 terabytes of disk. And um, you might create several, uh, several different volumes that uh, you would mount and format and all this stuff. And basically, uh, the pool is exposed to all of those. Uh, so you don't wind up with, um, you know, two terabytes allocated to something and, you know, 500 megs to another. And then you run out of disk. And then you're like, oh, no, I have no, no place to put my files. Uh, I was complaining about that on uh, IRC the other day because I always run into that situation, especially like on a laptop or something where, uh, you know, I'll just let it use the auto partitioner, but then you find out later that like you ran out of space on, you know, the user partition, but you have a whole bunch of free space on var. So then you end up like moving one big directory, like user ports or something to a different directory and sim linking it. And it gets to be this big hassle. Um, and I wondered why it can't just all be one uh, partition, but then do something where it can like f make a fake mount uh, in certain directories, so that you can still get the like per mount point uh, permissions, or like right. like now we have the WX allowed mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and you could still get those, and the kernel could enforce those per mount, but all the underlying files and everything and like the number of uh, inodes and all that other stuff would all be on one big file system. Yeah. Um, but obviously with that, you'd run into, uh, you know, if that one pr file system gets corrupted or something, you're screwed for everything, which is, I guess, a, uh, a reason to go the other way. Yeah. Well, and the other distinction is, is that we use um, FDisk to carve out... Um, the partition layout of the disk and then on top of that partition we use disk label to create the different mount points um, so you know those two tools combined give you what OpenBSD has for like file system file system storage um, it's not uh, ever given me any problems like I can't remember a time when I've ever like corrupted a disk or like you know, had to, uh, had like a panic or something and my volumes haven't been cleanly unmounted and I've like lost data or corrupted things. Mm -hmm. And, um, that isn't the case at all for, um, some of my Linux EXT file systems. And it's, um, and it's only happened to me once with ZFS where I've had some corruption and I was scrubbing pools one time and it said, Hey, these files need to be restored from a backup. And I don't know if that was a hardware thing or the file system itself, but, um, yeah, I mean, as far as file systems go, reliable, but again, um, if you're doing a storage, um, solution, I don't know that it's probably the best tool for the job. I think, uh, ZFS is probably a bit better suited for that kind of thing. Yeah. And especially if you're exposing that to other machines in your network, um, I don't think that uh, 
I don't think that OpenBSD is quite the tool for that job. It's it's just not very well suited for it. Yeah, I haven't had like uh, much corruption, uh, at least not in a long time. And I think a lot of those issues a long time ago were uh, when Pedro was doing a lot of changes uh, mm-hmm. in that kind of layer, and he was like the only one who knew that stuff. And so he would commit stuff, and everybody else would be like, yeah, fine, sure, looks good to me. And then we'd find out there were subtle bugs in it because um, it's a really messy area. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I haven't had much corruption, um, but, again, it's just not very uh, featureful yeah. and uh, kind of limited. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed um, a long time ago is that formatting in VirtualBox took a long time for FFS to write out the... Um, to format a particular partition. I thought, boy, this is really weird. And then I formatted partitions using FFS2, and it took a fraction of the time, and I'm not sure what the difference was, but I think it's just writing out a ton less um, to the disk using FFS2, you know, the backup blocks and stuff. Um, So then I was like, oh, cool. Well, then I found um, Pedro did a bunch of work in, in Bitrig to make FFS2 bootable, and I sent a diff, and uh, some of the stuff wound up going in the tree, but we weren't sure like how to make it available to boot off of without making it the default, because not everyone was sure that we wanted it to be the default, and mm. so it kind of got a little bit stale. But um, yeah, it was worked on, and and I and like I had been using it for a while, and then I was like, oh, I went to soft raid and crypto disciplines, and I was like, eh, I don't really want to pull this diff over anymore. Yeah, but I ran it for a long time and I never had any issues. So it's kind of like uh, the soft app stuff. Yep. Like I feel like everybody is using it, but we won't enable it by default because we don't like Theo doesn't trust it. Mm-hmm. But everybody is basically using it, and some like especially uh, CVS operations and stuff are just painfully slow without it. Right. Um, but I have not heard of anybody having any corruption or anything like that due to it in a really long time. So I wish we would just enable that by default. Yeah. All right. So one other thing I will say about, uh, storage, um, is that if you're going to run a database, um, don't run it on an EXT file system. We have, uh, a Linux Postgres server and arguably Linux has a little bit better, uh, CPU scheduling than uh, OpenBSD does, and Postgres running on OpenBSD is worlds faster um, than it is on Linux, and I think that's just because of the file system, and I think you can probably find that pretty well documented out on the internet, but our PostgreSQL installation running on OpenBSD runs circles around our uh, our Postgres instances running on uh, Linux, so... That's all I will say about that. Cool. So what's next? I just uh, searched for garbage in, in Mutt, and I realized we have a lot more emails in, that come in than I thought. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, everyone. Yeah. You guys keep sending in a bunch of feedback, and it's and it's fantastic, because... When when we do when we talk about stuff, it's a little bit stuff that we want to talk about, but it's also we don't know what our audience is, and so when you guys write in and you tell us stuff, that's good. We have some sort of pulse whether you know you guys like what you're hearing or you don't like what you're hearing, or uh, whether you think it's completely trivial or whether we've way over explained something or all that kind of stuff. Uh, we had some people asking about phone stuff. Uh, and about cyanogen and uh, full disk encryption on Nexus devices. And uh, you tried yep. Copperhead. Do you want to talk about all that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, so I, I read the article. I'm sorry, that's, that's not true. I saw the article about um, Qualcomm having a gigantic flaw with uh, disk encryption on Android devices. And there were some things leading up to that where people said, basically, um, the reason the FBI is not asking for, you know, help to decrypt Android phones is because there's a giant flaw and they don't have to get help. It's really that broken. And um, whether that's true or not, I haven't really validated or substantiated that. But um, 
my guess is is that because your data is being backed up to Google anyway, uh, they can just get a, a subpoena and go get your data that's been backed up from Google there anyway. So whether your device is encrypted, it's probably a moot point. Um, I threw Copperhead OS on my phone, and I, I was kind of looking at it, and I was reading about what the developer was working on, and he had made some improvements to Malloc, and he had um, incorporated OpenBSD's Malloc into Copperhead OS, and he had been upstreaming things back to OpenBSD, which I thought was great. Mm -hmm. And he had also um, upstreamed things to the folks at Google who work on Android. And so this wasn't just like a Cyanogen mod thing where somebody's like, dude, I can build a ROM, put it on your phone, look <laughs> at the sweet themes, right? Yep. Uh, um, and, and it seemed like he was a security researcher who actually had a, a good pulse on reality rather than just someone who was like... Um, I'm going to put some guard pages in here because I know guard pages are good. Like he was aware of how the device functioned and, and what would help out. Anyway, I tried it out. I did an install and I mean, it, it actually installed really well. Um, one of the things that they were trying to, to call out is that, um, the Google play services, I think is what the, the app is called is this huge attack vector because of the amount of permissions that it has on the phone and its exposure to the outside world. And he said, basically, you can still get apps on your phone, you can still do the things that you want to do, but we remove this because of those very reasons, and a lot of people don't like that. And I, I was kind of noticing that in the reviews for this particular app, people were like, why does this thing have so many permissions? I don't want this, it's killing my battery, it's so on and so forth. And um, so anyway, that was one of the mitigations that he had in place. Um, he also has, uh, there's a, an SMS app that's supposed to be end-to-end uh, -end encryption, which I think is supposed to be on par with uh, what Apple has in, in their devices. Um, what, is, what is the uh, SMS app called in iPhone? Uh, iMessage. iMessage, yeah. Uh, and that does end-to-end -end encryption, right? You have... Um, the other, if the other party has iMessage, it will do complete end-to-end -end encryption. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So uh, this SMS app works the same way, and it warns you, "Hey, recommend that they install this particular SMS app, and they can get end-to-end uh, -end encryption, and so on and so forth." So from that standpoint, I thought there were a lot of cool things going for it. You have, you know, the hardened Malik. You have the bug fixes that they were finding in the operating system. Google Play services was not even installed and SMS apps and things like that. I really thought it worked well. It felt fast. Um, unfortunately, um, I'm using Project Fi right now as a wireless carrier, and it doesn't support the carrier switching uh, that's required to use Project Fi, so I didn't get to test drive it for very long before I put um, a factory image back on my phone. Um but yeah, I mean, I think I think it has a lot of good things going for it. I would like to see it get Fi support. Mm -hmm. uh, what I liked, I, or what I saw, I really liked, and I was I was curious to see, or I was excited to see him pushing the changes back upstream so that it wasn't just a something that was living in a bubble. Um, yeah, it felt like I I feel like when you do security work. Um, getting it to the masses is always the challenging point because if you do work on something, if you improve something and it doesn't get adopted back up into the mainstream, no one benefits from it. And if no one benefits from it, then you didn't, you didn't really accomplish as much as you probably should have. Um, so I like seeing Android adopting things. And I like to see um, that work be rolled out on more devices because, honestly, you know, the mobile market right now is an atrocity, and it's um, probably not going to get better anytime soon. So, uh, I would imagine that that Fi stuff has to integrate pretty deeply into uh, the phone to be able to like switch networks and stuff, right? So yeah. that's probably why it's only on actual Nexus devices. Yeah, that's my assumption as well. And my understanding is is that um, you know Google doesn't um, make that application available 
I don't think in the app store. I think mm-hmm. it's, I, I think it's one of those, um, you know, closed source proprietary applications. So, uh, he isn't able to distribute that and he isn't able to, you know, obviously reverse engineer that or anything like that. So I think in addition to being tightly coupled with the hardware, I think that's the other reason. So now that you can't run Copperhead, are you still looking at getting an iPhone? Yeah, so I am kind of interested in getting an iPhone. Um, I've been asking around for used ones just to just like see how they work. Mm-hmm. And I saw the iPhone SE, which has the powerful CPU and it has a smaller form factor, um, and the price point seems to be right. And, uh, yeah, I am definitely looking the, the Android thing kind of really left me frustrated. And then one of our listeners replied back that that was probably, they were probably end of lifing support for those because of the Qualcomm vulnerability with full disk encryption. Mm-hmm. And like the 6P, I think does full disk encryption by default. So, you know, he seemed to like be making a correlation there and I, I don't really know if that's true or not, but I would think going from the 6P to the iPhone SE would be quite a, a large change because the SE screen is so small. Like yeah. the iPhone 6 would be more um, like similar size than what you have to what you have now. Yeah. Even I mean, it's still smaller, I think, but because um, I I think even the iPhone 6 Plus is the same size as the 6P right? because my 6 is the same size as my Nexus 5X. Right. Um, so, yeah, I would think going from the 6P to the SE would be like you'd feel like you're looking at a really tiny screen. Yeah, it that could be. Um, I, I guess, too, maybe I've started to consider the, the function and scope of what my phone should be doing maybe has has changed a little bit yeah uh, you're not uh tweaking it and installing sweet themes and all that other stuff anymore it, yeah exactly <laughs> i mean it, yep. it's it's not about like oh this feels good in my uh in my pocket because it's you know this big or that big or the other thing i mean it literally has become a utility much like you know a knife or scissors it's like yeah is it sharp and does it cut meat and that kind of thing? You know, it's, it's kind of like, can I send a text reliably? Yes, I'm done. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about it before where, um, like I would switch from Android to iOS, uh, to do development or something. And there was like one feature that I, uh, really relied on in Android and it didn't, it didn't work on iOS. So that was like preventing me from switching over. Mm-hmm. And then like with each new iOS version, they keep, uh, just, like implementing these changes that no longer made that stuff necessary. So I don't even, there's no like, there's nothing on that I need on my phone that doesn't work on iOS anymore, especially yeah. with like when they just added the night mode, uh, screen stuff. Like that was pretty much the only thing that I had to use Android or that I really liked on Android. Yeah. Well, I think, um, for me, the other big attraction to, uh, getting an iPhone is that, I want to do these, um, I want to build mobile web applications and maybe it's a side job. Maybe it's a consultancy I'll start or something like that. But, um, you and I have talked about my passion for highly optimized mobile web applications. And I think maybe that's an area that I should start building stuff in. And so I want to see, um, what, what it's like on the iPhone. The last time I built an app, they didn't have the, uh, I guess Google calls it the progressive web app, but I guess they didn't have anything other than native apps at the time for iPhone. And I was using Xcode and um, Objective-C and writing native applications. So I want to try out, you know, what it's like on the iPhone and and see if I can build a couple apps for myself because there's a couple things that I, you know, you guys hear me talking about the solar and that kind of stuff. So maybe if I can build um, some applications on the iPhone and satisfy my own curiosity and needs. Maybe that'll be useful to other people as well. Um, and maybe people will want to, you know, buy my services and, uh, I could make some money that way. I, I don't know, but it, it's interesting to me and I would like to try it. And 
right now on the Android device, I'm so frustrated even using it um, yeah. that I just, I really, I don't want to invest anything into that because if I build an app for my Android phone and then I go to use it and it's frustrating every time, I'm going to be really, really upset with myself for investing into any kind of technology on that platform. So, uh, I don't know if Android has a similar thing, but on uh, iOS, if you run Safari on your Mac mm -hmm. and you have your phone paired with your computer with that Mac, uh, in Safari, you can use all of the developer tools on the Mac that talk to the Safari running on the phone. Hmm. So you can get like the JavaScript console and the object, like the inspector, and you can see the screen, um, you know, like the 3D uh, layer viewing thing where you can kind of hover around and see what all the like layers are of your of your DOM. Yeah. You can do all that on your Mac uh, from what Safari is seeing on your phone. So it makes it really easy to um, debug stuff like that. So you don't have to like... Uh, you know, keep reloading it on your phone and all that kind of stuff. That's really cool. Yeah. That actually sounds extremely useful. Well, cool. If you need any more uh, iOS or iPhone advice, let me know because I've gone through many of them. <laughs> I asked a whole bunch of coworkers. I was like, hey, do you have any old iPhones laying around? And there was several people who thought they did, and they're like, oh, it has a cracked screen. I'm still waiting to hear back from a couple of them. <laughs> Yeah, I would say, like, I don't know how close uh, the nearest Apple store is to you, uh -huh. but, like, they're totally cool if you just walk in there and start using one and just play around with it for as long as you want. Like, yeah. they won't even come over and bother you. Huh. I should, uh, I should fire up a web application uh, on my home server and then start working on it with the iPhone and see <laughs> if the SSH client is <laughs> yeah. good enough to do development over. Yeah, trying to avoid spending six hundred dollars on a on another phone just yeah. to try it out. Well, hopefully you can uh, dump your six P on eBay or something. Yeah, I've had pretty good luck with uh, Craigslist. I don't know. I guess it depends on your area, but uh, it's usually easier and it takes less time and you get more money for it. You don't have all those eBay and PayPal fees and all that garbage. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm hoping, uh, I've actually been working on uh, the Chromebook a lot lately, but I'm hoping to have some time to put together some web applications just to, to scratch my own itch here. Um, but actually, I, I do want to talk about the Chromebook a little bit because we've been having some fun discoveries, I guess, in, in both of our respective areas that we've been working on, right? Yeah, um, it's kind of funny, like, when I wake up now, I'm excited to, like, go on IRC and see if you, like, posted anything throughout the night like oh my god i got it working or something like that yeah because we're both kind of uh stuck and trying to figure out little minor details to get stuff working yeah you had um you had the um you had just sent some correspondence on the list uh recently about um burst mode and basically you said what that the hardware doesn't support it uh in the chrome ec yeah, so I'm trying to... I can never remember, like, what I've talked about in last week's episode. Um, so I got the Nexus, or the Chromebook Pixel mm -hmm. to resolve some of these issues um, because both of the drivers that I... Um, or both of the code that I committed to the tree broke uh, somebody else's Chromebook Pixel. Right. So I wanted to figure out what was up with that and the video thing ended up being because he had an xorg.conf that was conflicting, so that is okay. Um, and so it was just the uh, keyboard backlight driver. Uh, when he would boot it, it would just um, halt, it would just freeze the laptop. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, doing this like deep dive into the guts of it to figure out where it was, um, why it was doing that, and it was because the ACPI code that we have has to talk to the EC, which is the embedded controller on the machine, which is a like separate little processor that uh, talks to the keyboard and the screen and the backlight and all that other jazz. Mm -hmm. And kind of because it has its own processor, it's basically doing all this stuff on its own. And then from the main CPU, 
it would have to like call over to that other CPU through ACPI and ask it stuff. And in the case of the keyboard backlight driver, uh, it basically just sends a command to the EC and says, hey, change the backlight to 10 or what is the backlight right now? And so that's where it was locking up on the Chromebook Pixel. And I found out that it was because the ACPI, uh, the EC that's on the Chromebook Pixel is actually not like a standard embedded controller that most computers have. And most computers, uh, including the HP Chromebook 13, Mm-hmm. which is why this issue didn't come up on that uh, machine. Um, but the embedded controller that is on the Chromebook Pixel and the HP Chromebook 11 and the Samsung Chromebook, uh, these are all running the a custom embedded controller that Google wrote. Um, and it's it's all open source, which is kind of neat because you can basically just load whatever you want on this little processor and you know do whatever you want. Um, and so that embedded controller, uh, is all running this custom open source code that Google wrote and the ACPI, um, kind of hooks in that code that, um, can talk to the host CPU through ACPI did not implement uh, burst mode and burst mode is basically used. So the host would say, Hey, embedded controller, I need to send or receive a bunch of data from you. I'm going to uh, send all this stuff to you. So don't kind of like lock yourself and don't change memory while I'm trying to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, the embedded controller, this custom one that, uh, Google wrote that the ACPI hooks for it did not support, um, the burst mode. It would just not respond to it. So because it's open source, I was actually looking at the source code to it today, and I realized that the version that is running on the on my Chromebook Pixel is um, kind of far behind their like master Git tree as far as, uh, you know, they're continually like adding new code to it as they develop new Chromebooks and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the version that uh, I am running does not support burst mode, but they eventually added it later. So all of that is to say that our ACPI code is basically assuming that the EC supports burst mode, and because pretty much every computer that we've run into until now has used like an off-the-shelf embedded controller for this stuff that all runs the same code, they all supported burst mode. So um, I sent that patch to tech to basically uh, do some more checking to see if the EC even supports burst mode before Mm -hmm. assuming that it does and waiting for it to reply, which never happens on the Chromebook pixel. Um, And obviously with something like that, that is used for a lot of critical functions in the ACPI stack, um, it can't just like get committed and see if it works. So it's something that we'll probably have to wait until after 6.0 unlocks. um, And then we can throw it into snapshots and see if there's any fallout. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, which means that I'm probably going to have to disable the uh, Chromebook keyboard backlight driver for 6.0 because if you boot with it enabled on a Chromebook Pixel, uh, which you can do now because of the other stuff that I wrote, um, it would basically just lock up and not do anything. Yeah. So um, hopefully we can get that figured out after the uh, tree unlocks and from the other research that I did into what Linux does and what FreeBSD do is that they don't even use burst mode. Um, They just assume that it's broken because a lot of hardware, I guess, older hardware um, or older like embedded controllers had issues with burst mode. Uh So FreeBSD and Linux just disabled it by default like a decade ago and they've been running with it off all this time. And we are apparently the only ones that run with it on, which seemed odd because it seems like we would be experiencing a lot more um, bug reports about it. Right. And from what uh, Theo and Mark told me, um, we have run into a lot of issues, but it was a lot of older hardware. Um, So I guess, you know, in the commodity PC market, they eventually kind of uh, fixed all these issues. So it doesn't really affect newer machines. Um, but there isn't really any advantage to using burst mode other than it's, uh, slightly faster, but it should, I mean, everything should still work, uh, without burst mode. It might just be a little bit slower. And when I say a little bit slower, I mean, 
uh, it's transferring like one byte of data between the host CPU and the EC, um, or like, you know, maybe four bytes or something like that. So the time to transfer that is like, you know, microseconds. It's not a huge issue. So I don't think anybody would even notice that burst mode was off by default if we went that route. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's a lot of investigation to figure all that kind of stuff out. Yeah. So, um, as it turns out, I was writing a new driver. So I got the, uh, trackpad driver all done and mm-hmm. all works and it supports, you know, tracking multiple fingers and all that using the new, uh, stuff that is in the kernel. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's cool. And the driver that I wrote is for the Atmel, uh, max touch okay. processor. And this processor is kind of, um, like the protocol that it uses to transfer data between the host and the and the controller is very generic. So like you ask the controller what all of the things are that it supports, and there's like a hundred different things that it can support. And the reason why it does that is because this processor um, can be used in a whole bunch of different applications, not just trackpads. And so one of the other applications that it's used is the touchscreen on the Chromebook Pixel. Oh, nice. So they both use the exact same processor, they can both use the exact same driver. Uh, the driver just needs to ask the device kind of what things it supports. And then there's some little minor things that you have to do when you're interpreting touches versus um, interpreting a finger on a trackpad. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't really care about the touch screen. I'm never going to use it because I hate touching my screen and I hate getting it all dirty and stuff. But I wanted to talk to it just so that I can put it in as low of power mode as I can to right. save battery life. Because um, when the thing is on, the this processor, that the Atmel processor, is basically sampling to see if there's anything touching it. And then when you start touching it, it goes into a fast mode where it starts sampling really fast. And then when you lift a finger, um, it kind of like tapers off and says, okay, there's nothing touching it. I'm not going to sample it as fast anymore. Mm-hmm. But you can actually put it in a mode where you don't, you're, it's not sampling at all. And so if I'm not going to use it, I'd rather just put it in that mode so that the touchscreen doesn't register anything. Hmm. And it doesn't like generate kernel interrupts. It doesn't do anything um, just to save, you know, that small bit of power. Uh, and in doing that, I ran into the issue that I ran into on my, on the HP Chromebook 13, which was that the DWIIC controller, uh, which sits in front of the Atmel controller on mm-hmm. the Pixel and in front of the Elan tech controller on the HP, uh, Basically, the DWIIC controller responds, and you can, like, uh, the driver works, and you can parse, it, like, sees the right version number and all that other stuff, but then when it tries to send an actual command to the device behind it, which is the trackpad or the touchscreen, um, it doesn't respond, and I can't figure out, that's the part where I'm stuck with both of these now, I can't figure out why they don't respond, and so on both machines, there's two DWIIC controllers, uh, and the first one is controlling the trackpad on the Chromebook Pixel and the non-existent touchscreen on the HP Chromebook 13. Mm-hmm. And then the second DWIIC controller is controlling the touchscreen on the Chromebook Pixel and the trackpad on the HP Chromebook 13. And on both machines, I can't talk reliably to that second uh controller. I can talk to the DWIC controller. I can't talk to the device behind it. So I'm thinking that there's something related there. And so I basically like put my HP Chromebook aside and because I was, I've been working on the Chromebook pixel for the past few days. And I turned on the HP Chromebook 13 without changing any of the code that's on that OpenBSD uh, on the SD card that I'm swapping between machines. And it just started working. I didn't change any of the code, but whatever it was doing before, now all of a sudden when it sends those pack that command to the Elan Tech controller, it's getting a response. Huh. So I don't know what the hell is going on. I don't. Uh, it makes me even more frustrated because now I don't know what, like what was going wrong before, and I don't know if it's gonna happen again. Um, but yeah, it's the same thing. So I can't talk to the touchscreen on the Chromebook yet, or on the Pixel either. So I'd like to figure that out so that I can move forward with writing or finishing the uh, 
trackpad driver for the HP Chromebook 13. Just leave it off for a few days and see. Yeah, and it's so like I was thinking like maybe the controller gets into a weird state if I was sending garbage data to it. But mm-hmm. then, like, I would reboot into Chrome OS, and the trackpad would work fine. So, obviously, like, Linux, you know, Linux could reset it to the point where it would work fine. And then I would reboot the machine, I'd power it off, I would do all this other stuff, and it, it would just not respond at all. It would just mm-hmm. time out. So, I don't know what's what's the deal there. Um, but I haven't been able to make it to, like, reproduce that magic working again on the uh, Chromebook Pixel touchscreen. So, I don't know. Ah, yeah. So lots of work. And, um, so since the trackpad driver on the Chrome pixel is done and I can't talk to the touchscreen, I wanted to write a driver for the little light bar that's on the back of the, of the, uh, lid. Uh-huh. Cause it's like, you can animate those colors and make them whatever you can make them do whatever you want. So like normally it just kind of shows the Google colors cause there's uh four of them. Right. And so it shows green, yellow, red, blue. And then if you suspend the laptop, they shut off. And then if you double tap the lid, like physically with your finger, um, it lights up green to show you the current battery status, (laughs) which is kind of cool. Um, But then when the machine is on, you can basically like program that little light bar and make it do whatever you want. And I was going to make it do something cool that I won't talk about yet, but I'll... uh, talk about it when I finish that driver. But basically to talk to the light bar, you have to I would have to write a driver that talks the to the uh that Chrome embedded controller and it would talk to it directly instead of through its ACPI interface. Mm-hmm. So I'm basically having to write a driver that implements all of the Chrome embedded controller uh custom commands and all that other stuff. Uh and so if I do that and then make the light bar work, I could actually just re-implement the back, the keyboard backlight driver through my uh, EC driver rather than going through ACPI. And then that way it would work by default without having to change our ACPI stack. So I might just do that and see if I can get that done before 6.0 freezes. That's cool. And then, and then we'd have uh, the ability to do custom light bar stuff for no apparent reason because you can't even see it because you're looking at the opposite side of the screen, but everybody else could see it, I guess. Maybe, uh, you could have it, um, uh, get the webcam working and then wherever your eyes look, make the light bar light up towards that direction. So people feel like you have like some sort of head tracker. (laughs) That'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I had an idea of, of what it would do but I don't want to spoil the surprise also because if I never get it working, then people won't be asking me about it. (laughs) Yeah. Like commit ID. Why isn't this done yet? Right. So that's basically where I'm at with the Chromebook still working on the EC code. And then once that's implemented, I can do the light bar stuff. Um, and I would like to try and figure out what is going on with the DWIC stuff, but this is more fun right now. Um, so how is your stuff going with the EMMC? It's actually, uh, I've made a little bit of progress. I th- I guess the status update is that things are fun. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it was a little disheartening. You, you messaged me on IRC this morning and you were like, Hey, is this the same thing that Mark's working on? <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, I took a second to message him just to see what was going on. Um, and so the backstory on this is I've pulled in all these changes from NetBSD. I had it added a whole bunch of device IDs. I added in um, a whole bunch of code that they do. I don't know, weird stuff in there. Uh, there's some commands that we don't even have code for. And what I wound up doing is uh, I took your advice from the last show and I started to print out the flags that are set and the commands that are being sent to the um, to the card in the controller mm-hmm. uh, or the host, I guess is the better way to say this. And, um, in the Linux driver. And I was like, okay. And, um, you know, I'm like, yeah, I just don't understand uh, why this isn't working for us. So then I, uh, compared the two and I went through the Linux driver and I started to look at what flags were set. And, um, the quirks two thing is just, 
I, I guess it's not really a nightmare, but the way it works in the code is um, you have a data structure that you set up for the device, and quirks 2 is basically just like this list of stuff that is broken or needs to be set for the um, particular piece of hardware. And in the code, it says, um, hey, if flag, if quirks 2 has uh, this particular flag set, do this thing. And it's like, it's literally like that hundreds of places in the, in the driver, um, which I think is a little bit strange. And it makes it really hard because I had to just, you know, go through and say, oh, here's where this flag is being evaluated. Let's see what it's doing here. Um, but anyway, uh, once I looked at what the Linux driver was doing, I made a couple changes to our driver and I was like, um, I cleared a bunch of flags out and I sent it uh, the same um, command that the Linux driver was doing and it worked and it returned successfully. And I was like, wow, that's really strange. I wonder, you know, why this worked. And as it turns out, it wasn't because I was sending a different command. It was because I was not setting another flag. And what wound up happening is, uh, in the response from the controller, we were evaluating to see if we were getting the right kind of response. Uh, so basically what happens is you send a command to the, to the host, and um, because you know what command you sent it, you know what type of response to expect back. And for this particular command, we were expecting um, an R3 response to come back. And when we didn't see it, we would say, this erred, this failed, it didn't work. Um, and what wound up happening was, I said, ah, quit evaluating uh, to see if we're getting this R3 message back. And it says, oh yeah, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what wound up happening is the EMMC is not powered on. And so before we can send any commands to it, we have to power it on. And I guess this is something that would happen in CBIOS. Um, when you boot the legacy CBIOS, um, it will either boot off of the EMMC or the SD card. And because we're booting off the SD card, it never powers on the EMMC. As soon as you power on the EMMC, the rest of our driver should just work as normal um, and everything should be just fine. So hmm. I talked with Mark a little bit and he's like, oh yeah, this is similar to what I'm doing with... Um, on uh, the ARM platform, and he basically said um, he didn't want to track all the changes that NetBSD had done in their driver. So I blew away my source tree um, and basically flipped the flag and started to you know try and power on the EMMC, and I wasn't able to. I, I just have run out of time, but. Um, I wasn't uh, able to power it on and tell it to power itself up before I sent these commands to it, but I'm expecting that it will work. And then once the EMMC is powered on and I send it this command, um, I should be able to read the OCR, which is basically like a configuration for the chip okay. uh, or for the card. And the um, OCR will tell us like what voltages to run on and a whole bunch of different information about the hardware. And uh, our driver currently supports all that stuff, so it should be able to do the um, the lower fast speeds um, well. It should be able to, uh, whatever the card says, it should negotiate and should work in our driver. But the ultra high speed stuff and uh, some of the ultra, I guess it's low voltage and ultra high speed are the extremes in here. Um, it might not do the ultra high speed stuff. So that's where it's at. Um, I'm going to try and play with it after the podcast tonight to see if I can um, initialize the hardware in the driver rather than having, you know, CBIOS do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess what eventually what would happen is, um, I don't know if it belongs in the driver to initialize the hardware if it's not been powered up by the uh, core boot or CBIOS, but that's where it would have to go, I suppose. Uh, I wonder if there is a uh, ECPI definition for it and whether you need to just execute some AML that says, hey, turn that controller on. It, it could be. And that's what Mark was asking earlier, too. He asked, um, he, he mentioned that he saw something in the AML for, um, 
I think that's what he said, that he saw something in the AML for something like that. So it could be that easy. Yeah, because like the DWIC driver um, needed that. Like I, I remember I couldn't uh, communicate with it, and it ended up being because it by default it wasn't even powered on. So you have right. to execute the the AML method that says um, to power it on. So there may need to be like a uh, ACPI kind of middleware driver that sits between ACPI and uh, EMMC or whatever the, or I guess SD... HC, SDMMC. Yeah, whatever that is, that basically finds it in AML and then boots it up. Um, and then just passes it along and says, okay, now you can do all the uh, MMC stuff inside of the MMC stack that we already have. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, the difference between what I'm working on and what Mark is working on is, um, so he's getting information out of um, FDT, the flattened device tree, mm-hmm. and he's uh, working on SDIO, which also hangs off of SDHC, Okay. SDIO is basically like a, a more generic interface, and I guess um, we have a lot of wireless things that hang off of that um, particular thing, and that's what it's designed for. Uh, and the only difference between that and what I'm working on is uh, mine's just uh, storage, MMC. Right. So, And his email says... Um, and indeed, after doing the MMC power sequence and VMMC supply magic, I now get a response from the SDIO card. Um, so yeah, he did that. I don't know if um, if it's desirable to use ACPI layer and AML versus writing something in the driver or not, but um, I'm curious to see. He, he was talking about MMC power sequence, which seems to me like what the Linux driver does. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I could take a look at that a little bit more closely tonight. Yeah, I guess it's just a matter of uh, where that configuration data has to come from. Like, he can get it out of the flattened device tree, uh, but you'd have to get it out of the AML if there's no, like, uh, short yeah. of, like, hard coding the you know, like in Linux, every driver has basically like the, um, hey, it runs on this BIOS, like from this vendor and this product, but we don't have any of that in OpenBSD, so yeah. it all has to be automatic, um, and so you would need that probably from uh, the AML. Yeah, now that you mention that, um, in their in their data structure with the quirks, um, they have something... Um, what do they call it, like a probing? Mm-hmm. Uh, they give it a function to, to call when they're probing, and um, I want to say this is like Intel BYT or something, and it basically gives the instructions for powering on the device. And they, I mean, I guess they do that per family, where they'll have a certain routine that's used on many different pieces of hardware, but I think maybe it's desirable for us to use the AML like you're talking. Yeah. If it's BYT, I'm assuming that's Bay Trail, yeah. Which like changed everything. Like we have all kinds of gross hacks for yep. Bay Trail stuff now because it's totally different than legacy stuff. Yeah. So cool. Uh, so I'm excited to see if you'll get that working, and then you can install OpenBSD to the uh, onboard uh, storage. Yeah, and then uh, you won't have to boot from the SD card, which means you can see if uh, suspend and resume work. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, I'm actually, I'm I I want to blow away the MMC if I could do this, but I can't do it. I guess without being an OpenBSD, I want to see if I could. Um, I tried to boot from it in CBIOS to see, you know, if that initialized it and stuff. Um. But it didn't work, so I almost I almost want to believe that if um, CBIOS powers it on, our driver will just our driver will just work. Yeah, it should. Yeah. Um, so when you boot uh, to CBIOS and you tell it to boot off of the um, MMC, does it screw up the screen and then go nowhere? It doesn't screw up the screen. It just doesn't do anything. It just sits there. Okay, because on mine, it tries to boot Linux, 
from some magic partition mm-hmm. and then doesn't work but it screws up the video so like really briefly i can see that it's like load it says loading linux and then like loading vm whatever vm l-i-n-u-z or whatever uh-huh. um and so i guess that can uh so i basically got openbsd installed onto the onboard storage on the chromebook pixel because it's um using a different it's not emmc it's like an actual ata ssd mm-hmm. um so that sent me down the uh the rabbit hole of trying to figure out how to make chrome os and openbsd coexist on the same drive which yeah. is the same thing that you should have to run into uh unless you want to blow away chrome os completely um how big is the emmc drive on the hp is it 32 yeah, I want to say it was 16 or 32, depending on the model you got. And I think the one that we have is 32. 32, okay. Because, like, the Chroma Pixel is 64, so that basically gave me about 54 gigs of usable storage for OpenBSD with mm-hmm. a 1 gig Chrome OS partition and some other garbage. Because there's basically, like, eight partitions on the drive uh, by default. Right. So I wrote all this stuff up in a gist that's on uh, GitHub. I'll link to it in the show notes. But it's very lengthy because uh, you kind of have to like tippy toe around Chrome OS um, and repartition things in a certain way so as not to blow, uh, confuse Chrome OS. Right. Because if you boot Chrome OS and it's and things aren't just so, it basically just gives up and says, "Oh, your drive is corrupted. You have to restore from a." from the uh, restore media, which I had to do about six times while trying to figure all this out. Um, And so basically what is going on is the disk has a GPT uh, disk or um, partition table on it because Chrome OS uses GPT for all of its stuff. But when you boot CBIOS, CBIOS doesn't speak GPT. It only speaks uh, MBR, which means that your drive has to have both. So you need a OpenBSD partition in the GPT label and in the MBR. Um, obviously, they need to like both align at the same start and end sector. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be a valid MBR um, partition table on there as well that um, tells CBIOS which partition to boot. And by default, CBIOS is trying to, at least on the Chromebook Pixel, it tries to boot one of those um one of those other partitions that is used to store the kernel for Chrome OS. So there's on the HP Chromebook or on the Chromebook Pixel, there's basically four partitions that store kernels. Two of them are not used. And then one is like the primary and one is the secondary. Yep. And then there's a hidden, not hidden, but um, there's a GPT attribute on the partition on one of those kernel partitions that tells Chrome OS which partition is the active one. So then when Chrome OS is updating itself, it flashes one of those other kernel partitions and then just says, try to boot to that one. And then the when core boot comes up, it tries to find which partition is active, which has that um, active attribute on it, tries to boot that kernel. If that fails, it falls back to the other, um, the, other the old uh, kernel partition. And so when I was doing all this, um, our F disk was actually blowing away that hidden or that attribute, the GPT attribute. So then when I would try to boot back into Chrome OS, it couldn't figure out which kernel partition was right. And it basically, um, you know, defaulted to, I don't know what to do. You have to restore the, the machine, which blows right. away your OpenBSD partition. Yep. So I have all these instructions if you want to read them. Um, It's basically how to repartition the disk to just give only one gig to Chrome OS so that uh, it can reformat that partition itself. And then you can still boot into Chrome OS if you want to, like, I don't know, upgrade core boot or, you know, do whatever you want to do. And then the rest of the disk is given to OpenBSD, but then you have to um, do stuff kind of differently so that our install boot um, program can figure out that it is an MBR disk and then know how to install the boot blocks. And then obviously when you use SoftRAID, which um, puts a disk on top of that, it all becomes even more confusing because you tell install boot to 
install to the software disk. Right. And then it looks at the software disk and figures out what is the physical disk underneath and then has to install code in the MBR of that physical disk that says jump to the Softraid uh, location to load all the other code because obviously all the code for Softraid doesn't fit in uh, 512 bytes. So there's all these instructions um, how to uh, fix stuff and where the Ray Protect screw is on the Chromebook Pixel and how to get to it and set all the flags so that it can boot to OpenBSD or boot CBIOS quickly by default. Did you do that on yours yet? I have not, no, because you said you have to remove the right screw before you can tell FlashROM to write that particular area or set those flags or whatever. Correct. Yep. Um, yeah. So I'll put that in the show notes, and then hopefully once you get the uh, EMMC stuff working, you can uh, install OpenBSD to the EMMC. Yeah. That's awesome. And I love that gist too. That's a ton of research and work consolidated and explained in a, in a really, really, really concise fashion. I read over that and I was like, Oh my goodness. And, and I've been looking at the Chromebooks for a couple of years now, and it's taken me a long time to, you know, to sort through all that kind of stuff. So if you guys want to know how the Chromebooks boot, or if you just want to understand the boot blocks and, and that kind of stuff a little bit better. This is a really, really great write-up. Um, get your hands on it and take a look at it. Do we have anything else? Yeah, I don't think so. I think that was a good episode. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, give a brief update. Uh, last week I was talking about Z-Wave, and mm-hmm. I wanted to install a Z-Wave controller and a light switch and a power meter. Yeah. So I bought a Vera Plus controller and a GE Z-Wave uh, light switch. Uh-huh. And I bought this specific GE light switch because it said that it did not require a uh, neutral wire uh, where you install it because my house is old and doesn't have the neutral wire going to the light switch. Sure. And it turns out that GE switched the uh, product and the model number is newer than what is... Uh, I I think they basically made a new switch and then it took the place of the old one. So it's a different model number, but it's the same product on Amazon. Uh-huh. So like the comments that I were reading that said it didn't require neutral were from like 2013, which was the old product. Oh. So basically uh, I got screwed. So I can't install the light switch because um, you need a neutral wire and without that it won't power on. So I had to return that. And then I bought a new uh, switch that is coming that you actually install up in the light fixture mm-hmm. because there's a neutral wire there. Um, so then the switch doesn't have to get replaced, but then obviously you'd have to like open up the junction box above the light and, you know, wire it in there. Yeah. So, um, and then the Vera plus controller that I had, um, I got the power meter talking to it and it mm-hmm. was able to like detect how much power was going to the washer and dryer, which is cool. Um, I haven't written any code that like monitors it and sends pushover notifications yet, mm-hmm. but then the uh, Vera plus controller uh, conked out and I couldn't power it back up anymore. So I had to return it and I got a new one today and I haven't set it, uh, set it back up yet. So I don't know what's up with that, but yeah, it stopped working after like two days. Huh? That's, that's strange. Poor thing. Mm-hmm. Were you, were you uh, running too much current through it being on the dryer? No, because like it's all like the the um, power meter is you know physically touching the uh, power wire, like down in the um, the breaker panel. Mm-hmm. But it's you know it's wired to the switch itself, and then the switch is sending the power data to the controller through the air. It's you know it's Z-wave wireless stuff, right. so the controller isn't actually talking uh, to anything. Like it's not touching anything. It's just plugged into the into an outlet and it's got ethernet to it so i don't know what the hell happened to it but um it wouldn't boot up anymore and i couldn't see it on the network so i had to return it um and i think i saw that these like these run linux and they actually have ssh on them so you can just like ssh directly in and write some uh code i guess (laughs) um 
Yeah. SSH. It's running drop bear. That's oh, very kind of nice. cool. Yeah, because um, yeah, even like through the web interface, you can uh, like copy and paste Lua code, which is how you can like write custom code for it. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow, that's so bizarre. I've never actually seen Lua like used in a real thing. Um, and I don't really know too many people that it would actually write Lua aside from Ted Yu. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so once uh, now that I can SSH to it, I guess I can start writing some code to monitor the power meter. That's awesome. So that's uh, all I wanted to say about that, and I guess that's it for this show. Yep. Um, if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about or not talk about, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM or through our website at Garbage.fm. Brandon, how can people reach you? Yeah, find me on Twitter. Hit me up. I'm at no Mercy Mod, And you can also find me on Google+. Uh, I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs and ah, crap. Uh, I wanted to mention that I am going to sell my Samsung laptop mm-hmm. that I uh, developed DWIC on. Um, so if anybody wants to buy it, let me know. I'll uh, leave the OpenBSD sticker on there for you. Give Ooh. you a sweet deal. Uh, otherwise, it's just going on eBay. It's nice. a Samsung uh a ATIV ATIV uh book 9 12 inch screen high dpi 8 gigs of memory 256 gig ssd and it runs openbsd so that's all cool uh yeah Have we had a whole bunch of t-shirt orders and sticker orders come rolling in since we started talking about them? Uh, not really. Uh, more sticker orders, and they're mostly for the OpenBSD stickers than ours. Nice. But, uh, yeah, I haven't seen too many t-shirt orders really rolling in. But that's okay. Yeah, it's out there. Um, yeah, the stickers seem to be a pretty popular thing lately. Uh, this Jason Tubnor, yeah. Tubnor, he was asking about storage. He asked at the bottom, Brandon mentioned IRC, is that the OpenBSD dev IRC or an open IRC channel? Did you ever oh. reply to him? No, I didn't. I didn't know if we should uh, plug Metabug or if people would be annoyed that new people come in there. Um, Probably not. It's supposed to be... A BSD user group channel. Yeah. So it's it's really um, instead of being like an OpenBSD, FreeBSD, NetBSD channel, it's supposed to be the Meta BSD user channel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think really the idea of MetaBug is to have um, some cross pollination for uh, user group mainly, and so. Uh, who is it? Brian Callahan was in there, or is in there, and he does the nice bug stuff, which is primarily, um, uh, who is it? Um, Sean Webb, mm-hmm. uh, him and George do the OpenBSD stuff, and who else is there? Um, I don't know. A whole bunch of people basically from various different BSD disciplines, uh, give talks at this BSD user group. And then um, Aaron Bieber, he's in there, and he set up the Colorado. Andrew Fresh is in there, so he's got OpenBSD and FreeBSD and all that stuff out in Portland. So it's just this BSD user group kind of thing where everybody talks about stuff. We wound up with a lot of developers in there. so Yeah. Uh I want to. I wanted to start a uh, Chicago BSD users group, mm-hmm. and I was emailing back and forth with somebody who may have had a place to do it at, and he ended up not being able to get that space, and then I moved and all that other stuff. But I'd still like to do that. I can't believe there isn't more BSD users out here. Well, you have um, what's the guy's name? It is. Like, I'm pretty sure there's no OpenBSD developers uh, in this area. Kent does, uh, he lives out your way. Oh, yeah. Kent Spilner? Yeah. 
I jumped on a plane with him to go to Calgary. Nice. Wait, he's an OpenBSC developer? Yeah. Since when? Um, I don't know. It's been a while. Huh. Yeah. I'll be darned. Yep. I know. I didn't know that there was anybody out here who used OpenBSD or liked OpenBSD, and then I ran into somebody at BSDCAN, and he's like, yeah, I'm from Chesterland, which is like 30 minutes north of me. <laughs> oh, nice. And uh, I'm always driving up to Chesterland because that's where Micro Center is. Yeah. And I, I said, well, do you use OpenBSD in your job? He said, no, we don't, but, you know, you know, I, I use it and I love it. And I was like, oh, that's cool. So, And then uh, I guess TJ, he's become an OpenBSD developer recently. He lives in Ohio as well. Yeah. And there's another guy from Ohio, too, and I can't remember. But we're, um, TJ isn't too close to me, but I guess there's one other person who lives in Ohio. So, Cool. I don't know how Ohio got more OpenBSD users than a major metropolitan city. <laughs> but maybe they're all just hiding. So I don't know if this is going in the after show, but if you listen to this and you live anywhere near driving distance of Chicago, uh, email me. Yeah. And we'll go get beers or coffee or whatever and talk about BSD. Pizza seems to be another favorite. Yeah. 